Amen. Well, there was an article, speaking of the Super Bowl this week, in the Washington Post, and it was titled this, For Tom Brady, Football Has Become Religion. For Tom Brady, football has become religion, and it's, it's really a tragic article when you read it because it's all about how Tom Brady has searched for meaning and significance and even spiritual fulfillment through football. And the article concludes, and, and Brady says, look, I've given my life to football. But in the article, as I was reading it, what stuck out to me when we come to the section of 1 Samuel that we're going to be in together this morning were a couple of quotes made by some people as they were observing the relationship between sports and religion. In fact, I've got a couple of these quotes that will be up here on the screen. The first one says this, Seeing sports as religion makes sense. Both create community, have saints and rituals, and take place on hallowed ground. That's a bold statement. But from the world's perspective, okay, I I can see where they're coming from there, right? How about this next quote? This is from a, a psychologist, a psychology professor actually at Murray State University, Daniel Wan. Sports might bring people together better than religion. It has the ability to integrate people from an incredibly diverse set of backgrounds. I don't know any pastime that does that better than fandom. Again, a bold statement, but yet again, from an earthly perspective, a worldly perspective, it's, it's tough to argue with it. I mean, how many of these NFL stadiums are filled to capacity with 70,000, 80,000 people on the weekends? People from diverse backgrounds that come together and they all put on their Rams jerseys or they all put on their Char- Chargers jerseys. And they, they gather together to, to cheer on the same team. And they celebrate, and they have joys together, and they have, they have sorrow together when the team doesn't do well. And so from an outsider's perspective, outside of the church looking at sports, it, it makes sense to draw the parallel. But for us, we know that the relationships that are, are formed uh, sitting in the stands at a football game fall far short when compared to the relationships that we are able to form with one another in the church based on our common identity in Christ. See, our text this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 18 through 20, it's going to give us a picture of genuine biblical friendship. And all of us need these kinds of relationships in our lives. We're not going to have this level of friendship with everybody in this room or even everybody in your small group. It may only be two or three people at a time that you're able to have this depth of relationship with. But we need the types of relationships that we see in David and Jonathan. See, biblical friendship is a unique bond. It's a unique bond, then, and because of its uniqueness and and how much goes into it, it's one that we can only share with a limited number of people as we're willing to give ourselves humbly and sacrificially in commitment to one another. There's a book that I would encourage you all, if if you'd like to to go out and get more resources, to, to pick up a copy of. I went to college with this guy, Jonathan Holmes. He's a pastor at Alistair Begg's church in uh, Ohio. He wrote a book called The Company We Keep. The Company We Keep in Search of Biblical Friendship. Excellent book on, on this concept, on this subject of what does it look like to develop biblical friends. He defines friendship biblically this way. Biblical friendship exists when two or more people 
bound together by a common faith in Jesus Christ, pursue him and his kingdom with intentionality and vulnerability. I'll read it again. Biblical friendship exists when two or more people bound together by a common faith in Jesus Christ, pursue him and his kingdom with intentionality and vulnerability. Again, we're going to look to 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20. The relationship of Jonathan and David together this morning to uncover a little bit more practically for us, what does it look like? How do I form biblical friendships? With three chapters to cover, obviously we're not going to go through verse by verse, but we are going to start in chapter 18, verse 1, which follows right on the heels of you'll have to go to seminary to figure this one out. Chapter 17, there you go. You have a degree, don't you there, Derek? Chapter 17, so it falls right on the heels of chapter 17. What happens in chapter 17? Nick Foles slays Tom Brady. David and Goliath, right? And, and after David slays Goliath and everybody goes out and conquers the Philistines, David is called in before Saul and Saul is curious about him. Whose son are you? And he wants to find out more of this information. So we come then to chapter 18, verse 1. It says this, As soon as... As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. That word knit, it means to knot, to tie together, to adhere one to another. We read it in Genesis chapter 44 verse 30. When Joseph's brothers are before Joseph and Joseph says, you need to leave Benjamin here as a test of, of your reliability. And the brothers respond and say, now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy Benjamin is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, it's the same word, knit together to the boy's life, bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And so this word knit, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. It's a it's an inseparable bond that's formed. It's a closeness. It's an intimacy that goes beyond just the surface. It goes beyond the level of just being skin deep. Which gets us thinking, what is it that attracts us to friendships? What is it that draws us to others in relationships? I think most often it's, it's pretty surface issues, initially at least, right? It's, it's common interests. It's common environments. Maybe you're friends with some of the people that you work with or friends with some of the people in your neighborhoods. And I think sometimes it's, it's just plain old attrition. You've got somebody that's bound and determined to be your friend whether you want them to be your friend or not. And eventually, they wear down your defenses and you've got a friend you never knew you wanted. Well, psychology today, which I know is a bastion of conservative theological knowledge and information, they've come up with 13 essential friendship traits. Here they are. Trustworthiness, honesty, dependability, and loyalty. That's lazy writing is what that is. Because those are the same thing four times over, basically just synonyms almost of one another. We can get behind that, okay. How about trusting? You also want your friend to be somebody who's going to trust you, okay? You want somebody who's going to be empathetic, all right? We can get there. Non-judgmental. This is where Maybe a red flag goes up here because we, we love to throw out, well, Jesus said, don't judge. No, he didn't say don't judge. He said, take the log out of your own eye so that you'll be able to judge, so that you'll be able to see the speck in your brother's eye. In fact, Galatians 6, if you find a brother who's in sin, gently 
confront and restore that brother to godliness, right? How am I going to confront a brother if I'm not going to judge the sin in his life? So non-judgmental, that, that doesn't really fit. A good listener, okay. Supportive during the good times, but, but not just the good times, also the bad times. So you got to be both, even according to the world standards there. Self-confident. We don't want anybody we're going to have to build up and encourage all the time, okay? So if, if you're not confident in your own skin, don't bother applying for friendship. Funny. We don't want any duds hanging around us. If, if you don't have a sense of humor, you, you're not qualified. And fun to be around. That's one of the 13 essential friendship traits. Fun to be around. Isn't that built in to the concept of friendship? So no Eeyores. Eeyores out there, you have no friendship hopes in your life at all. This is what the world says attracts us to friendships. But what was it that attracted Jonathan to David? What was it that knit his soul together with this shepherd boy? Well, Jonathan had just seen David in great boldness and courage, passion and zeal for the Lord. Stand up and defend the honor of God against all odds and go out and slay Goliath the giant. And so Jonathan looked out at David and said, this is a man who loves God and so this is a man that I love. What attracted Jonathan to David was his love for the Lord. And I wonder this morning, how many of our genuine friendships, genuine relationships that we have in life are built on that same foundation? Not just our acquaintances that we see at church on the weekends and we say, well, I have friends at church, so then I have biblical friendships. No, biblical friendship is not just having acquaintances that you say hi to and talk about sports and the weather and news and politics while you're standing on the patio after the sermon on Sunday. Genuine biblical friendships move the ball down the field. They're not satisfied at that surface level, and those are the relationships that we need. We need deeper friendships founded on our relationship with Christ. See, men, we need other brothers in Christ who are going to get in our kitchen, so to speak, and ask us the hard questions about how our marriage is doing. Not just, hey, how are things at home? How are you loving your wife? How are you speaking to your wife? We need those types of men who are in our lives. We need the friends asking us about our prayer lives. When's the last time you you spent some time in in prayer that wasn't before a meal? Hey, how's your your time in the word? And that we need the men that aren't going to be satisfied with the answer, good? Oh, yeah, good? Well, well, what are you reading right now? Oh, you know, DBR? Okay, well, well, what are are some of your thoughts about what you've been reading? Is is God doing anything in your life through your time in the word? Those are the types of relationships that we need. We need friends who care about our holiness. In fact, we need friends who are willing to confront us in order to see us restored to godliness. The writer of Proverbs says, what faithful are the wounds of a friend. We need friends who aren't afraid to wound us for our Christ-likeness. We need the friends who Paul says in Romans 12, 15, will rejoice with us when we rejoice and weep with us when we weep. In fact, you can write it down for point number one tonight, this morning, the way we, not tonight, this morning, (laughs) the way that we develop godly friendships is this, we must humbly seek godly friendships. We must humbly seek godly friendships. You see, Christianity isn't an individual sport, it's a team sport. It's a team sport. God doesn't save us and, and stick us in silos with just us and maybe our families and say, okay, do the Christian life. 
He saves us and he puts us in the body of Christ. And he compares us to a body and says, we're all individually members of it and we need one another. Just like the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, or the foot, I have no need of you. We need one another. We need those lives. And so here's what that means as practically as I can make it for you. Your closest friends in life need to be believers. Your closest friends in life need to be believers. Not your college buddies or your war buddies or your job buddies. Believers in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, Pastor PJ, shouldn't we be friends with unbelievers? Yes, I'm not saying that. Why should we be friends with unbelievers? Towards the goal and the end of what? Seeing them come to faith in Christ. Your goal with unbelievers is to see them come to faith in Christ. Your goal with believers is to dive deep in friendships that only can be formed with others who share a relationship with Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Here's the stark reality. If you're not surrounding yourself with people who genuinely care about your godliness, then you're opening the door to backsliding and compromise. You have to invest in godly friendships, and that's going to require effort and humility. In fact, look at Jonathan's initial reaction to David in the first part of chapter 18. He he doesn't demand respect from David. He doesn't take his position and say, you know what, David, I like you, and so you're going to like me whether you like it or not. He doesn't look at David and, and just say, David, You just earned yourself a spot on on my groupies. Come hang out with me. Come hang out with the Prince of Israel. You're part of my crew now. No, Jonathan goes to David. It says in verse three, Jonathan made a covenant with David. Notice who the one initiating this is. This is the Prince of Israel. Now we know the rest of the story that, that he doesn't eventually take the throne, but this is the one that's waiting for the throne in everybody's eyes. And he goes to a shepherd boy because he sees his love for the Lord and he makes a covenant with David, commits himself to David because he loved him, it says, as his own soul. Verse four, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. There, Jonathan is showing great honor to David. He's showing great respect to David and he's demonstrating humility in himself. Some think that Jonathan here was actually demonstrating publicly that he wasn't going to be the next king that David was. I I think we're pressing the text a little bit further than the text gives us justice to to do that with. It's possible. It's just, let's not build our, our, our foundations there. What we do know that Jonathan was doing is humbly pursuing a committed covenant friendship with David. We need to pursue others that way. We have to be willing to commit to them willing to humble ourselves in that. So what does that mean? That means there's no more hiding behind the introvert label. There's no more hiding behind the introvert label. All of us in this room would would throw our hands up and say, yeah, I'm an introvert. Why? Because it makes it easy. I don't have to put myself out there. I don't have to be vulnerable. I don't have to be the one who pursues. No more hiding behind the introvert label. No more hiding also behind the stereotypes of what constitutes manliness. Uh, It's not manly to be, uh, you know, close with another guy like that. It's not manly to pursue friendship. We've got got brothers in Christ, right? Which is a safe, sterile term that we can throw out. Let's blow that up, guys. No more sitting back 
and waiting for someone else to pursue you. Because that's the default, I would imagine, of pretty much everyone in this room. And if we're all sitting back waiting for everyone else to pursue us, it's never going to happen. And so the challenge is this. I think it's time for you this morning, maybe someone at your table, someone in your small group, to commit to pursuing them this way. The great philosopher, theologian, Winnie the Pooh, said this, you can't stay in your corner of the forest waiting for others to come to you. You have to go to them sometimes. You can't stay in your corner of the forest waiting for others to come to you. You have to go to them sometimes. We need to pursue, we need to humbly seek godly friendships. There's, there's one more thing, though, that David, that Jonathan, excuse me, didn't do with David, and that's he didn't view him as a threat. If anyone had the right to view David as a threat, Jonathan did. This is the one that, that has the acclaim of Israel. Everybody's excited about David. So Jonathan, as, as next in command, probably a contemporary age-wise of David, maybe a little bit older, is, is ripe for looking at him with jealousy and contempt. But he doesn't do that. Unfortunately, the same couldn't be said for his father. We find that as David returns after his conquest of Goliath and the Philistines in verse 7, that he's greeted by these women who come out and they sing to one another as they celebrated Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. This wasn't a song meant to impugn Saul, but simply to to celebrate the enormous victory that had just been won, to celebrate the accomplishment of David. But Saul doesn't take it that way. In verse 8, Saul was very, what, angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. That word eyed, it means to look at with jealousy, to look at with contempt, to look at with suspicion. So whenever David was nearby, Saul had one eye fixed on David. This is really a turning point in the entire book of 1 Samuel. Because from this point out, this is a hinge point, from this point out, the rest of the book is all about this tension between Saul and David. Saul at this point is pitting himself against David and he will for the rest of the time in 1 Samuel. But what we find in our text is Saul's reaction to David was actually the opposite of Jonathan's. It was the antithesis of Jonathan's. Initially, what does Saul do? Saul grabs David and says, you're gonna come join my team whether you want to or not. But then when David is successful, Saul becomes jealous of David. And Saul begins to eye him. He begins to suspect him of of trying to steal his glory, steal his fame, steal his position. He begins to view him as a threat to the kingdom. As we just read, what more can he have but the kingdom itself? And so what does Saul do? Well, Saul tries to kill David. He picks up his spear on a couple occasions and throws it at him. And we can just be thankful that Saul's a lousy shot. But then not only does he pick up a spear and try to kill David, but David goes home after one of these times and Saul sends messengers to David's house to try to take him captive and bring him back to the palace to execute him there. And Michael, Saul's daughter, who would marry David eventually, saves David and sends him out by a window. So Saul tries to kill David. Saul tries to publicly humiliate David. See, before he married Michael, David was supposed to marry Saul's other daughter, Merib. Saul, in fact, promised Merib to David. 
But then when time came for him to give his daughter to David, Saul gave his daughter to somebody else, which would have been publicly embarrassing and humiliating for David. Well, then eventually when Saul learns that, that Michael, his other daughter, is in love with David, he thinks that this is another chance that I have to kill him. And he calls David to him and he says, hey, you can marry my daughter, but there's a bride price involved. I'm going to need you to go out and get 100 Philistine foreskins. Now, David wasn't going to be able to go knock on the doors of the tents of the Philistines and say, hey, can I trouble you for something? This was going to involve danger. This was going to involve war. This was going to involve risk. This was going to involve David putting his life on the line. And what was Saul's hope? Saul's hope was the Philistines would kill David. Then he'd be done with him. But David comes back with the bag of foreskins, and we can just be thankful that there's no illustrations that we have in our Bibles. And Saul's forced to give him Michael as a wife. See, jealousy consumed Saul. He saw David's success, and rather than rejoicing in the God of Israel working these victories or rejoicing in a fellow Israelite's success the way Jonathan did, Saul became jealous. Saul became so consumed with his own glory that he had no room for biblical friendship with David. And for us, as we pursue biblical friendships, there's no room for that type of behavior. In fact, this point number two this morning, this, put to death jealousy and rivalry. Put to death jealousy and rivalry. Strife and contention have no place in godly friendships. Paul describes these things in a couple of different passages. The first in Romans 1, 28 and 29. Romans 1, 28 and 29. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a, what? A debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Well, what is a debased mind described as? He continues. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, notice these words, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. So when we allow envy, when we allow strife, when we allow covetousness to creep into our relationships with one another, we are acting as those who Paul says have a debased mind. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3? 1 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3, Paul says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Well, what does it mean to be of the flesh? He tells us, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Strife and contention have no place in godly relationships and biblical friendships. Instead, godly friendships are built around what? Built around seeking the good of the other person. This is Philippians chapter 2, isn't it? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, what? Count others more significant than yourselves. That's the paradigm for biblical friendship. Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, Saul. Look also to the interests of others. The disciples had to learn this lesson too. The mother of James and John, what, she goes to Jesus and she says, Hey, Jesus, this was just in our DBR not too long ago. Grant that my two boys can sit, one at your right hand, one at your left hand, when your kingdom comes. And Jesus says, hey, that's not mine to grant. Well, what's the response of the other ten? 
the text says that they were indignant with the two. Why were they indignant? Because they're sitting there going, man, we should have thought of that. How dare you be the first one to think of that? I thought we were going to draw straws or something or just let Jesus pick. And so Jesus gathers them all around and he says, no, you guys are missing it. He said, you guys are acting like those who don't know God. The, The Gentiles, he says, lord it over them. He said, but you need to be different. The one who wishes to be first among you must be servant. In fact, he must be the slave of everyone, he says. And then he he holds up the ultimate model for us. He says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Guys, that's a model for biblical friendship for us. There's no room for competition, strife, jealousy. So practically, practically, again, here's where the rubber meets the road for us. We can't begrudge another brother's blessings. Even when we're at rock bottom and and it seems like we've been dealt the worst hand that life could possibly deal us. And then we've got a brother who's got the promotion and got the car and got the family and got the health and got everything going on. We've got to guard internally. You may say, well, I would never verbally begrudge somebody. You've even got to guard internally against spiting him or begrudging him or being jealous of him or coveting him or envying him. Because that has no room in biblical friendships. Ultimately, as plain as I can say it, there's no room for horizontal comparisons amongst us. As you're striving for biblical friendship, biblical relationships, there's no room to look to your right and your left and go, well, I'm doing better than him. Oh man, but I'm not doing as well as him. I wish I, was, I, wish I, was, I had what he had. Now, what does biblical friendship look like? As Paul uses it with the illustration of running a race, it's looking at the lane to our right and the lane to our left at our brothers who are running with us and saying, hey, how can I help you right now? How can I take a load off so that you can run less encumbered? How can I help you as you strive for the finish line? That's what biblical friendship looks like. It's rejoicing, again, with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. Hopefully this is a little more than a reminder for us of what it is as as believers to be brothers in Christ. Yes, there's no room for rivalry, envy, strife, contention. We need to put those things to death. Well, some more things happen between where we've been in in chapter 20. Saul tries to to kill David, you know, two or three times and and he's unsuccessful with it. And so eventually David and, and Jonathan reach an agreement. And David says to Jonathan, hey, look, I I think your dad's trying to kill me. I don't know, but I've got a couple of spears stuck in some walls. My wife said some crazy stuff about some messengers coming. In fact, to get my wife, I had to go, well, you know that story. I think he's trying to kill me. And Jonathan goes, well, let me go check. (laughs) David's a more patient man than I am. Okay, Jonathan, you go check. Jonathan says, I'll go look, I'll come back, and I'll let you know. And so, so David and Jonathan come up with this agreement of what they're going to do. And so Jonathan goes in before his father at this feast, and, and David is gone. And David's absence is noticed. And the first day, Saul's like, okay, whatever. He ate a bad taco the night before. He's not here. I'll let this one slide. But the next day, he's not there either. And so Saul's beginning to become offended that David's not present. And he asks Jonathan where David is, and and 
Jonathan, out of love and care for his friend, doesn't say, oh, well, he's out hiding in a field waiting for a secret message from me on whether or not you're going to kill him. Now, Jonathan covers up for his friend again, and, and Saul this time, though, becomes enraged. Verse 30 of chapter 20. Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. It's a great word there, kindled. If you don't know what it is, what it means, come camping with us. It's, it's what you use to start a fire, to get the flames going. And so Saul's anger is inflamed against Jonathan. His passion is enraged against Jonathan. And he says to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. That was a Hebrew idiom at the time that basically meant, man, you are one rebellious wretch. And so he's attacking his own flesh and blood, his own son. He says, do you not know that you have, do, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse? His contempt is so much for David that he can't even say his name. It's like when David was talking about Goliath and just called him the Philistine. So Saul saying, you've chosen the son of Jesse to the shame of your mother's nakedness. Again, Saul is not the sharpest tool in the shed. He goes from using a, a pejorative term about Jonathan's mom to appealing to his causing her shame in the same sentence. But he's going after Jonathan. He's confronting Jonathan about his allegiances, his loyalties here. And in verse 31, he says this, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. So Saul uh, goes after just his, his guilt of betraying him. He goes after his, his shame for bringing shame upon his, his mom. And he goes after Jonathan's sense of, of greed by appealing to the kingdom and saying, you're never going to get the kingdom as long as that boy is still allowed to live. Unfortunately, well, or fortunately, Saul doesn't really know his son at all, does he? Jonathan knew where the kingdom was headed. 1 Samuel 23, 17, Jonathan is speaking with David and he says this, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Again, the humility of Jonathan. But notice that, that Jonathan doesn't bow out of things be, just because Saul is family. He doesn't say, oh man, Sorry, David, I'm out, dude. You, you know, family ties, they're strong. I gotta go be loyal to my dad. I, I, sorry, I can't, I can't betray you. I can't betray him for, for you. No, in, in fact, Jonathan not only acts in accordance with what is right, he stands in opposition to his own father, his own flesh and blood to remain loyal to his friend. It's point number three this morning. It's this, put some skin in the game. Put some skin in the game. See, Jonathan put it all on the line for his relationship, his friendship with David. Literally everything. He put his kingdom on the line, his status on the line, his family relationships on the line, and even his life on the line because Saul gets mad at Jonathan too, picks up his spear. I don't know how many of these spears he has, but somebody needs to take him away from him and hurls his own spear at his own son, Jonathan, trying to kill him. Jonathan had invested everything 
We need to be willing to invest in biblical relationships, to put something in, to put some risk on the table, to be vulnerable. But unfortunately, I think for so many of us, we we maintain this level with our friendships. Even in the church. And so our, our friendships, our relationships are, are here. And so our conversations is, hey, man, how are you doing? I'm, oh, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. How was your week? Oh, I was busy. Maybe we'll, we'll bend the elbow a little bit like this and say, you know what? It's, it's been a, a rough week at, at work. Can you pray for me? But, but, but for us, we like our relationships safe. And so we keep them here. In fact, if I can step on some toes this morning, don't worry, I did last night too. I would venture a guess to say, I think in a lot of our small groups, we keep our hands like this. And we give the prayer requests that are safe. We'll let down our guard a a little bit. But we're not fully ready to put the skin in the game to invest, to put something on the line, to risk so that we can have close, godly friendships. Solomon said, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. How do we do that? What does that look like? How how do we begin to let down those hands? It's our... Next slide, Jay, if you'll go to it. It's the biblical one another's. Let's walk through a few of these together. Be at peace with one another. Be, live in harmony with one another. Okay, we, we can do that even with our hands up. Now we start to get a little bit messier. Welcome one another. How? As Christ has welcomed you. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Do not bite and devour one another. Bear with one another in love. Be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted with one another. Empathetic, feel, weep with those who weep. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's keep going, next one. Confess your sins to one another. Man, now at this point, the hands are down at the side. It's a command in scripture from from the book of James. Confess your sins to one another. Serve one another in love. This next one's for those of you that, that just have that competitive streak in you. Outdo one another. How? In showing honor. Love one another with brotherly affection. And then... The capstone of it all, John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another and oh, that Jesus had stopped right there. Because if he had, I can define that. Are you loving one another? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm loving others. How? Well, let me give you my definition of what it means to love somebody else. I ask them how they're doing. I, I, I put their prayer request in my phone. I give you that you love one another just as, stop Jesus, no! Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. 
Philippians 2.5. Have this mindset amongst you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. For the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That's how we begin to put some skin in the game. But see, here's the thing. To do this, it involves humility, as we've already discussed. It involves vulnerability. And that may be the hardest one for us to overcome. It involves dying to ourself, our pride, our need to have people think of us in a certain way, in a certain light. To let that go. It involves discipline and it involves intentionality. So you're not going to go to bed tonight and wake up tomorrow with godly friendships if you're not sowing the seeds of godly friendships right now. There's no miracle growth for biblical friendship. It requires work. It requires investment. It requires you to move towards somebody who right now may not be moving towards you to take the initiative, to step out there, to put yourself out there, to put the skin in the game so that you too might be able to say with Solomon that this, there is, yes, a friend who is closer than a brother. See, we need these types of relationships, these intentional, godly, sacrificial relationships in our lives. We need them. So let me challenge you this morning, if I can, as we close, to identify at least one other guy in your small group to be more intentional in pursuing a biblical friendship with. Just one guy. If you want to overachieve, go for two, go for three. That's fine. Any more than that, and it's going to start to get difficult for you to maintain the types of of commitment that we're talking about here but at least identify one to start pursuing in this intentional way. Uh, Again, that psychologist who looked at the Super Bowl and and sports and religion and said, yeah, look at the Super Bowl, look at sports. It does a better job at bringing people together than religion does. We know that that's just a bunch of malarkey, don't we? We know that. We know that our relationship with Christ bonds us together to one another more intimately than any other relationship or common interest this world has to offer. We know that. The question before us this morning is this, are we willing to model it? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for relationships, friendships like we see in Jonathan and David. Thank you that we can look to their lives and and learn something of what it looks like to be committed in a godly friendship and a biblical friendship to others. Lord, help us be faithful in that pursuit. Help us be a church of men who are strong in relationship with one another because it will be for the betterment of our church, for the betterment of our families, for the betterment of of our wives, of our children. Lord, for the betterment of our, our walk with Christ. Father, may we 
leave behind our, our egos. May we leave behind our pride. May we leave behind our need to be viewed as having everything together and be willing to let down the facade to say, guys, I don't have it all together. I need you in my life right now. Lord, may we be faithful brothers to pray for each other, to encourage one another, to move towards others, even if they're not moving towards us at the moment. Lord, may we not wait in our corner of the forest waiting for others to come to us, but may we go to others. Lord, we love you. We thank you ultimately for the greatest act of sacrifice, the greatest act of of love that we could ever know, and that is Christ coming and giving himself, giving his life for us. May we, yes, love as he has loved us. Give us the, the grace, the strength to be able to do so today. In Christ's name we pray, amen.